0: listening to Radio Free
1: Philosophy. Welcome once again to Radio Free Philosophy. My name is Kevin Brown and as you remember uh, last week I was interviewed by uh, my colleague uh, Bob Uricu, and so this week I'm going to return the favor and interview him, find out a little more about uh, his views on philosophy and teaching and life in general. And uh, so I begin the same way uh, he began last week by asking him how he first got into philosophy, where he first developed the interest, and where he uh, began his study of philosophy.
0: Well thank you Kevin, that's a good beginning, to begin from the beginning. I went to a small high school in a small town and I can assure you there were not many philosophical questions asked in that high school nor were there any horizons opened up. So I went a few towns over to a a community college my first year of college and that was a new experience for me. It was a much bigger city and I found out that there was so much I didn't know. So I heard professors and students using terms and names I'd never heard before so I got myself a little book called The Dictionary of Philosophy, edited by Dagobert Runes and I started reading from cover to cover. That raised more questions that I saw not being answered anywhere. In fact, the, the uh, community college I went to had no philosophy courses. So I went away to another state to a small four-year liberal arts college called St. Anselm College in New Hampshire and. I decided to major in philosophy. Now you've got to remember what the the climate was. It was the mid-60s, the Kennedy assassination, the Johnson years, the Vietnam War. The United States was in turmoil, civil rights, and there were no answers. And so for me philosophy was, was a way to arrive at some answers. So I guess that's how I decided to become a major in philosophy.
1: I imagine you had a lot of company back then. I imagine a lot of people were seeking answers.
0: And Curious enough, there were scores of philosophy majors in this small liberal arts college.
1: Yeah, and uh, as far as I know, St. Anselm still has a pretty good reputation as one of the better uh, liberal arts colleges mm-hmm. in the United States. Uh, were there any particular um, professors or teachers there that were influential?
0: There was one kindly old man named Joe McDonald, Professor McDonald. He was a an institution in an institution. Um, He was educated at McGill in mostly scholastic philosophy as you'd expect from a mostly Catholic college. And he was a follower of Dorothy Day in the Catholic Worker Movement. So he believed in redistribution of wealth and he believed of course in the worker movement. He himself worked as a volunteer janitor at the college because he felt that would bounce off his uh, ivory tower intellectual life. So, in other words, he practiced what he preached. So, I was impressed by that. And he introduced me to the philosophy of communism, and that was very influential on me the idea of I- redistribution of wealth. And then the, f- the, s- the philosophy department was mostly scholastic philosophers, and there was a man named Warren Hamill. Who was urbane and the opposite of Joe McDonald, um, who showed me that you could be a scholastic philosopher, a traditional philosopher, and be very sophisticated and suave and make a lot of sense. And so he taught me metaphysics in such a way that it looked like the the scholastic worldview helped to give meaning to this chaotic 60s world we lived in and uh, implied that there was really hope to find adequate answers out there. So yeah, these two had a great deal of influence on me.
1: And then uh, where did you uh, pursue graduate work? I went to Italy because part of the answers
0: involved um, the ultimate questions. Is there ultimate meaning? Is there a God? And what could be known about that God? So I turned to religion. and um, I moved from a philosophy major to a religion major in graduate school. Now in graduate school, it seemed the most promising place to study but religion was in Italy, in Rome. And because I was already in, in a scholastic framework, I thought that's what I'd find there. And so I did, and I, I learned a lot more scholastic philosophy in graduate school. But I my major was really religion.
1: So you have a background in both philosophy and religion. In mm-hmm. fact, you teach uh, uh, both types of courses now. That's right. Uh, maybe tell us a little b- about what you... Um, what kind of courses you teach on a, on a semester-to-semester uh, basis.
0: At IUS I teach um, introduction to the New Testament, introduction to the Old Testament, introduction to Judaism, religion and American culture, and uh, religion, ethics, and public life. That's kind of my standard routine up there. And at, of course at U of I teach mostly critical thinking and logic.
1: It seems like there might be some potential conflict between the worlds of philosophy and religion. Do you find that there is such a conflict? And if so, how do you go about resolving that in your own thinking?
0: That's a very good question because the history of my intellectual growth is pretty much tied to that question, to the conflict. When I started studying uh, religion in Italy, the graduate school I attended insisted that you begin from the beginning with sound philosophy, philosophical ideas, but also from the basic literature. And so they they told me I should study the Christian writings and the the Hebrew writings in what we call the Bible. But they told me you can't study those unless you first know very well the languages in which they were written. So I had to study Greek and I had to study Hebrew. And then they said you can't go on to study those unless you know the history and the culture of the centuries in which they were written. So I got a lot of dose of archaeology and, and sociology, in fact I even had a, uh, a diploma from a, an archaeological school in Italy. And I had to know more history, I had to do a lot of reading before I could even approach the literature of the, of the Christians and the Jews. So one of my most compelling experiences was precisely the clash between critical thinking and the claims of religion. Because to analyze the literature of the Bible, one had to see it in what my professors called a Leben, a situation in life. And they said that situation in life conditioned everything that an author would write in Christian literature or Jewish literature. And therefore, it's relative to the times, and so its message is not eternal very highly conditioned and so claims of the eternality or the absoluteity of religion clashed with this historical data that's time enclosed its conditioned it's temporal and this of course made me realize that, made me realize that i had to take a critical thinking approach to all this kind of literature all the claims had to be subjected to um, historical and philosophical and logical criteria. You can bet there are quite a few clashes.
1: And uh, it seems like potentially a little bit ironic that uh, that you were instructed in that way with regard to religion because philosophy uh, seems to attempt to try to find such universal answers yes. to a lot of these questions.
0: Yes, and certainly in the, the dominant field in which I encountered philosophy, namely scholasticism, um, that just simply took the claims of Christianity and tried to, to rationalize them, make some sense out of them. In fact, Thomas Aquinas is no, no, most notable for doing that in his Summa Contra Gentiles and his Summa Theologica. So in many ways, um, one could approach the Bible and religion with scholastic philosophy and not feel a jolt. But that wasn't what my professors uh, told me to do, or invited me to do. Nobody ever told me to do anything. They invited me to be, to be critical at all times, to evaluate uh, according to data and the evidence. And if there was no evidence for a claim made in the by a, a scriptural author, then it was to be taken with a grain of salt, maybe with a ton of salt.
1: Given your sort of eclectic background with scholasticism and also uh, finding uh, Marxism fairly influential, uh, where would you put yourself today in terms of the range of philosophical schools of thinking?
0: I guess the best way to describe where I am now would be to to say postmodernism, with all that that means. Because one product of my education was a very healthy and vigorous skepticism about everything. Every claim made by a religious writer, even every claim made by a philosopher was I was invited to subject it to the, to the strictest skepticism. And so I find myself in the spectrum um, of modern thinking as being a postmodern, I guess um, a deconstructionist, if you will, because let me see if I can uh, sum up postmodernism. It's done very well by Miller. Miller would say that the postmoderns approach their agenda, their thinking, in a holistic manner. So they don't see any field in isolation from other fields. And that, that had a great impact on me because, as I told you, when I first began to study biblical literature, I was told you can't because you've got to learn all the fields that are um, tributaries of Biblical literature, archaeology, ancient history, languages. And so that was a good a good lesson for me. Nothing can be studied in isolation. And then secondly, um, Hillard points out that the postmoderns are pragmatic. And so we're all familiar with Marx's uh, notion that the object of philosophy is not to understand the world, but to change the world, and we've spoken about that in previous um, recording, recorded sessions. So that fits in with my idea of the redistribution of wealth, a, a just and fair society. That what good is knowledge if, if it can't be done to um, to accomplish something good? And it also fits in with my Jewish background. In Reform Judaism, we have a notion called Tikkun Olam the uh, repairing of the world that in in the reformed Jewish tradition the creation of the world is not over it's still going on but it's going on now by human beings and that human beings have a duty to repair the world to fix what's wrong in the world that's why so many reformed Jews are found in in um, movements like socialism and marxism and uh, certainly in the civil rights movement then thirdly um Postmoderns insist on the relativity of words to historical periods and traditions. Words and meanings change over time, so there there are no fixed entities called words that have meanings that are are valid for all time. Everything's in flux. I mentioned this concept of Sitz im Leben. Um, I guess they would say that's where we're coming from. And then I'm I, I identify myself with postmodernism because the postmoderns insist like modern physicists and astrophysicists that the world isn't comprised of facts that are objective, neutral, uninterpreted, simply data. We can't observe any aspect of reality without changing it ourselves because the observer alters the observed in modern physics. That seems to be a good paradigm for all learning. We're subjectively involved in in factual data, what we call factual data, and we change it somehow. We, we enter into a relationship with it. We experience it. And so the postmodern world is really loath to set up some absolute truth out there. Now while we're on the, metho- the notion of truth, another thing that influences me are, are, are people like um, Derrida and Rorty and Foucault. who. Um, we're pretty much of a mind that there is no absolute truth. and That's a big clash with the claims of religion. It's maybe more of a skeptic. Our senses deceive us. Even the truth tests in traditional philosophy, the correspondence test, if something corresponds um, with what is in our mind, it must be true, but we know that our senses deceive us, so that's not an absolute uh, absolutely reliable test. The coherence test, if something coheres with our Previous knowledge, it must be true, but our previous knowledge could be mistaken. So that's not an absolute reliable test. And then, thirdly, there's the pragmatic test of truth. Something is true if it works. That's really the American way of looking at things. And I think that can be demonstrated to be false in many ways. And so, in the end, I, along with the postmoderns, would say that all truth is tentative. It's a It's something fleeting, and it can change at any moment. So that's where I'm located, in that spectrum.
1: Well, you've raised a lot of interesting uh, issues there, and I think we'll try to pursue some of these in a little more depth. But first, let's uh, take a break, and then we'll come back to our interview. Some thoughts from John Cleese. We are said to live in an age of information. This
0: means that we also move in a formation, that we tend to be headed in more or less the same direction. But what if the formation in which we find ourselves is off course? If it is, then a few of those who seem to us out of line may actually be headed in the right direction. This is both a worrisome and a liberating thought. A message from the Philosophers of America, celebrating 100 years of thought.
1: Okay, we're back from the break, uh, interviewing uh, Dr. Robert Uricu, and finding out a little more about uh, his views on uh, philosophy and life and uh, teaching, and it's that third one I want to take up now in a little more detail. You mentioned something earlier about uh, being very interested in in philosophy that has a tangible influence that changes um, the world as opposed to just talking about it, so how do you approach teaching uh, that, in that vein?
0: Well, if my philosophy leads toward practical effects in the world, um, nothing is going to be brought about unless there is a change in the student. So, that kind of conditions my whole approach to learning which is not the same as teaching. Learning is an activity. It can't carry on. It can't happen in passivity. And so a teacher is most ineffective when I think, he or she lectures. Um, the old approach, I think we talked about this before, in teaching this, when we were in college used to be the so-called jug and mode technique, where a teacher takes his full jug of knowledge and pours it into the empty jugs of the students. I abhor that notion because it implies so much passivity on the part of students and and lack of creativity. So I invite students to change. I invite them to discover. And this is very, very difficult when dealing with, say, religion of any kind. Um, Well, no, I I should take that back. Um, Religions that are not your own make it very easy to discover important things in them. But religions that are your own, the religion that is your own, I should say, um, can make you very, very defensive about discovery. Um, And so I do invite the students to discover, to read on their own, and then discover what they think are the practical applications of what they're reading. And to use critical thinking tools to evaluate the quality of their learning and sometimes that causes extreme cognitive dissonance.
1: Yeah, I can see how that would certainly arise uh, if you bring a lot of preconceived notions into the classroom that appear to be challenged by the uh, the instructor. I wonder, uh, something you mentioned earlier, I wonder how receptive students are to the, the the simple truth that you mentioned that in order to study one subject you do need to know something about some prior subjects Uh, Do you find that students are resistant to that notion today, or uh, do they recognize the the usefulness of that insight? I think they're very much
0: opposed and even um, militant against that. I think they see a course as containing some compartmentalized knowledge that can be learned and applied, and very few seem to have the, the willingness to go outside the course to read, to do research and to realize that no course can be taught in isolation. It's just not a package you can buy and, and apply. It's, it's all knowledge is interconnected and I don't think our school system is teaching, doing a good job teaching people that.
1: Yeah that is a a big challenge and it's, it's tough to sell people on until you actually start seeing uh, the connections for yourself which of course raises the question of how do you get them to, to see the connections I wonder if you could tell us uh, about some of your reading now that maybe demonstrates this this continued search for connections between different uh, different areas of knowledge. What, what what kind of books are you reading right now?
0: The most recent books I'm reading are um, Robert Price's The Incredible Shrinking Son of Man. I've been reading that for some time now, but it, it takes it's very very difficult reading. It t- it's requiring every bit of my literary, archaeological, historical, and cultural background to wade through these chapters because it's, they're very dense and they, they presuppose a great deal almost an encyclopedic knowledge to approach it but this man is making sense of a lot of my previous biblical education. I'm also reading his um, um, The Reason Driven Life which is a, written in, in, as a kind of a, a counterbalance to uh, the purpose-driven life, which is so popular in the bookstores, but bases itself on a fundamentalist approach to the Bible and to religious knowledge in general. I'm also reading read, uh, I'm rereading Sam Harris's "The End of Faith, in which he applies a, a great deal of modern knowledge, again, encyclopedic knowledge to the question of uh, religious claims. So I'm having fun with that. A lot of it confirms what I've I believe for a long time.
1: Now carrying up on the theme of um, keep keeping the theme going of uh, philosophy being uh, an agent of change, are there are there things you do besides teaching that sort of carry this notion uh, throughout your life?
0: Oh, I'm politically active. Mostly in writing campaigns, I write the people in Congress a great deal, often to no avail in this state. But I still write. Um, I I belong to organizations that advocate social justice and, sh- and social change. So I don't believe that philosophy is is ivory tower.
1: Since you've been teaching for quite a while, I'm sure you've had some fairly rewarding experiences. Do do any couple of those uh, leap to mind as being uh, particularly noteworthy?
0: Yes, I find them in the the rare but heartwarming letters or phone calls or conversations with students at the end of a class in which a student discloses that they would looked at life in a way they never have imagined before that they have changed fundamentally and they can never go back to, the, to an old way of thinking. So it gratifies me to know that as a result of dialogue and search and effort, a student has made life changes and will never be the same again. That is probably the most satisfying experience a teacher can have.
1: And on the flip side of that, uh, what, what's been your uh, most frustrating experience in oh, teaching?
0: Felt. <laughs> don't get me started. <laughs> The underpreparedness of students is an obstacle to learning. Students have apparently been preparing for tests, standardized tests, but they have no sense of integration of knowledge. And so the end result is almost a lack of curiosity about any other knowledge. They don't read news, or don't read newspapers, they don't watch news. They don't read much. I know it sounds like a a broad condemnation, but I am not seeing a great deal of intellectual inquiry. To be an intellectual, one would have to read 25 books a year. I don't see that happening in many students. Now, another frustrating experience, probably the most frustrating experience of all, that I'm seeing is a mind-numbing, growing, fixation with fundamentalism that almost as an escape from the complexities of life, students seem to be turning to a, a fundamental biblical message and saying they have the truth, there's no need to go anywhere else. And that is extremely frustrating because that will, that will be the death knell of Western civilization as we know it, as soon as people believe that they have the truth once and for all, and there's no need to go any further.
1: Of course, that's uh, very antithetical to your uh, uh, notion of postmodernism, but if you had to speculate on what what were the causes of that, what what do you think is driving that? Is it just the recognition that, that the world is complex and so there's an instinctive recoiling from that, or is there yes, something else? I think
0: there's a backlash against the complexity of the world, and not many students are capable of, of handling this kind of complexity, so they retreat toward the sure faith of their parents, their grandparents, their communities, and they find refuge and comfort there, even if it means a kind of a bifurcation, a, a, a dichotomy between the, the world in which they have to live and work, and, and the, the world in which they worship on Sunday. Um, it's almost schizophrenic, but they, they seem to be able to retreat into that, and of course with that comes the, the tremendous shift toward uh, uh, a conservative approach to politics so that social justice is no longer an issue for them but the maintenance of the status quo. And that's very disturbing.
1: Now uh, to play devil's advocate for a moment because uh, I'm sure that the students might be thinking this when they hear you uh, uh, make these comments. Well w- what's what's so wrong with this fundamentalism because I mean, first of all, it seems to be working for uh, my parents, so why shouldn't I think it would work well for me as well?
0: Well, of course fundamentalism works. As I said, it's mind-numbing. There's no need to um, bring critical thinking skills to bear because the truth is already packaged, prepackaged, packaged pre-digested, and there's no need for effort. And learning involves effort. Learning involves risk. And new knowledge, new frontiers are risky. We don't know what's out there. We don't know where we're going to go. But the the safety and security involved in fundamentalism is like, like the smell of apple pie when you come home. Uh, you just know everything's right. Mother's in the kitchen. All's right with the world. There's something so comforting about that. We even speak of comfort food, the food we we're brought up with. Well, fundamentalism is, is kind of like comfort food for the soul. It soothes you. It eases you. eases you. But it doesn't invite you to explore, and it doesn't invite you to question. And so we see that in America, we see an inverse number of people in America who believe that the the world was created about 6,000 years ago or less, uh, compared to the same number of people or the same percentage of people in in Great Britain. Um, There's an inverse proportion. Why is that? Why are two English-speaking cultures so different? I really don't have the answer to that, but I I do believe the British school system invites people to inquire and invites people to challenge. And I don't believe our school systems do that.
1: And we have a a tough challenge ahead of us if we're going to make up that ground and given perhaps that the the school systems are not gonna gonna take the lead on this what what advice would you give uh, students themselves if they're interested in um, living in the world that they have to live in which is the complex world of reality.
0: I continually invite them to avoid the paradigm of the so-called three boxes of life where life takes place in three stages Preparation your student years, then your your career, and then retirement. I think that is just um, antipathetic toward the intellectual life. I invite students to imagine themselves embarking on a voyage of lifelong learning. That you may put in certain ports, but you never never stop learning. Um, that and not to expect to arrive at the truth, ever. If you think you have the truth, you may be in error. So I encourage students to keep reading, keep educating themselves all their lives. They don't need a school to do that. Because to me, one of the best products of an education is to render teachers useless, that that a student becomes an autodidact, a self-teacher, and does that by reading and I'm not seeing that happen a great deal it could be one reason why the creativity and productivity of America is waning in the face of cultures that do emphasize education such as India and China.
1: Well your students might not be doing that as well as you like but it's not I don't think for lack of uh, a good role model because I think you're uh, very good in your encouragement of self-learning and continuing love of, of wisdom and Thanks for the opportunity to uh, to let me talk about it with you. Thank you, Kevin. It's been a pleasure.